Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and I'm really excited today to be bringing you what is the 100th episode of the podcast. It's interesting to think that all those episodes back and about four years ago, we kicked off the pod with the idea of giving investors and people an insight into some of the leading minds in wealth management and give them a fly on the wall experience into many of the conversations I was able to have as an investor and as an advisor to some of these people. So hopefully we have achieved that. Obviously, a huge thanks to all our listeners who have made it such a wonderful experience and such a success. We're closing in on 200,000 listens, which is quite phenomenal. We've had some remarkable people on the show. Hamish Douglas, this will be Hamish's fourth time to help us celebrate our 100th episode that he comes on in this episode. Kathy Wood uh, at ARK Invest has been a phenomenon in the last couple of years. Rhett Kessler, a huge shout out to him coming on the first podcast. Phil King, along with many other Hall of Famers. It's just been a tremendous effort. And of course, a big thanks to my son, Josh Clark, as the editor of the podcast. He's done a huge amount of work. And also a big thanks to Tom Oriel who's also been vital in it as well. In this episode, the 100th episode, which we were hoping to do in front of a live audience, which we've actually postponed, so it'll be a bit like the Tokyo Olympics, in that the 100th episode celebration and live event has been postponed, so it'll be around episode 116, I would suggest, if I was to guess. But in this episode where I'm speaking with Hamish Douglas, who recorded the episode from London where he's conducting business meetings at the moment, we discussed a number of issues that I think are really pertinent for investors and people looking to manage money and wealth management. Some of the great takeouts I think that Hamish talks about are what are the behaviours of great investors? He breaks that down and talks about how people can manage those type of traits. Bitcoin and crypto, Hamish talks about his view that it's very possible that Bitcoin and other similar crypto currencies and assets go to zero. We also talk about China and Hamish talks about how a portfolio should have 10 to 15% of its exposure given the phenomenal growth and westernization of China still to come. We also talk about how he's seeing the market now in the short term and also in the longer term. So without further ado, please enjoy the podcast. Remember to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast. This isn't designed, nor is it specific advice. People are encouraged to seek their own advice before making any investments. Please remember to keep your feedback coming. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Thanks a lot and enjoy the episode. Hamish Douglas, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thanks for joining us. Uh, David, it's an absolute pleasure to be with you again. Well, I think it's a special one. Um, I'm a little bit nervous even. It's, it's, this will be our 100th episode and we were supposed to film or record a 100th episode in front of a live audience and, and make a big event of it. Uh, unfortunately, due to the COVID lockdown situation here in Sydney, uh, I think it's going to become more like the Tokyo Olympics and that we'll end up having our 100th episode celebration and live event more around 115. Um, I thought I might kick off by a thanking you for joining us and uh, listeners to the show will know your great support of the show being episode uh, uh, number two back in 2017 in August actually so there's a bit of symmetry around that but I thought you might kick off I I know you're in London at the moment you've been there for some business trips and and meetings but maybe you could describe um, and, and give the listeners a bit of the lay of the land as you're seeing it over there now and I think people are very interested given what we're going through here in Sydney and how the UK's handled it. 
Yeah, it's it's extraordinary. You know, we we were very critical of of the UK initially. They they handled the the virus very poorly um, initially, but but you're over here. Their, their vaccination rollout has has gone incredibly well, um, and you, you, you're walking around the streets. I'm I'm a little bit more cautious than them. I I go into everywhere with a mask, and I'm using sanitizer and everything else. And and I've been double vaccinated. Uh, yet you look around and you, you walk past the pubs and they're all full and people are in the shops. People aren't all back at work. So, you know, when, when you're in a work environment, I think because of maybe health and safety issues, people are more cautious. They're meeting you outside of their offices or they've got protocols if you're going into their, their, their offices. But the, the, the general public is is really starting to move around and, and, and really starting to, I, I guess, live with COVID once they're uh, vaccinated, so I think that's a real a, a real hope uh, for for Australia. You know, we handled it much better initially. Um, obviously, the vaccines it would have been great had we got them uh, early, but I think we weren't expecting this Delta variant to 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 come out. Although I would say that type of thing is foreseeable um, in this, but it, but it's interesting to say when you see a highly vaccinated population. Life can go on with a little bit of caution, I, I think, but, but but go on and 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 open up, and people are getting on with their lives. That that of course depends that we don't get another uh, mutation here that, that 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 changes the game again. But at the moment, the UK people are moving around, even though the Delta virus is is sort of moving around society. But vaccinations really do appear to help here in terms of mobility of people, even with the. Uh, this Delta variant, you know, widely spreading in society. Well, thanks for that update. I think that it's very helpful for people to keep that in mind. Uh, might turn now more to our sort of business discussion and the wealth management discussion. And obviously, you've been a experienced some fantastic growth. And I think I first came in contact and met you around about 2008, 2009, after you'd started the fund in 2007. Um, since that time, the funds, the, the main, the funds under management of the group are over $110 billion. And that's been phenomenal. And congratulations and the performance has, has been well noted and recognized. One of the things I'm really interested in is what behaviors through your career have you learned or studied from others that have made you a better investor? And can you maybe give us some examples of how that played out? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question, uh, uh, David. And you know, I, I spent a lot of time studying the great investors of the world. You know, whether it's uh, Phil Fisher or Ben Graham or, or Warren Buffett uh, or Peter Lynch or, or others over time. You know, how have they created these incredible uh, track records? And actually, you pick up different things from from different people. But also in your own experiences, you, you have to understand that you never stop learning in this game. And if you think you know everything, um, that, that is the point where you really don't know anything. Um, if, if, if you think that, you know, this is a, 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 is trying to understand some very complex issues. You're trying to predict the future in a future that, that, that has rhymes of the past, but always can be different in, in the future. So, so there, there are some things of sort of uh, tools of the trade that, that that I guess I've picked up from people and my own sort of lessons uh, over uh, over time that that I I think are important for anyone in, in investing and and I, I'm not sure these are in order of the most important things but I think they're all important. 
One, I would say that you learned from Ben Graham from his very famous book, uh, Security Analysis, was the, the, the proposition of a margin of safety. You, you, you want to buy assets um, at less than you think that they're worth in order to incorporate some room for error. You know, every, you, things go wrong. Um, and, and, and when things go wrong, you want to have a margin of safety. You know, if, if you're designing a, a, a bridge that, that can take, you know, 100,000 tonnes, um, uh, you don't want to set the safety limit at 99,999. You'd probably want to set the limit materially below the maximum capacity of the bridge to make sure you're never testing that. And, and that's the same thing in investing. You, the, the, you want to make sure that you incorporate some room for error in, in, in your analysis. And that, that was a very important lesson from, 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 from Ben Graham. Uh, the, the second one, I think this is really an important lesson from Warren Buffett, and, and that's something he calls his circle of competence. Um, and I think that that you, you don't want to be pretend to be an expert in everything because you become a know-nothing investor. You know, I, I describe a sort of our approach as sort of inch wide and mile deep and, and very, very clearly defined areas in which we we, we have expertise. You know, we don't invest in biotech. Um, there can be some great biotech investments, but I would say it's largely outside my area of, of competence or, or, or expertise. I'm not a trained scientist um, in, in, in that area. And we, we want to invest in areas where we really think we, we have some knowledge and some, some edge and things we can we, we can understand. I also believe that it, it comes to an issue of focus as well. Um, I, I believe that you can you can make very good returns by being focused in particular areas, but you can't make great returns trying to be all things to all people. Uh, we're very very clear at what we do at Magellan. We're very focused on on a very high quality sort of um, set of companies. Um, high quality companies aren't going to perform the best every single day of every single month of every single quarter. But over time, they've got tremendous advantages because they have much lower failure rates. Um, do we care if our particular companies don't outperform every market, every period of the year, every six months, every three months, every year? No, we don't. But we have a very high degree of sort of belief that the quality actually rises to the top over the over the longer term. Another thing I learned, and this comes to sort of heuristic biases here that a lot of people suffer is you need to be prepared to walk away from, from investments. Um, and that's really hard because often you spend an enormous amount of time and effort researching um, uh, things, or you can be in investments that go wrong and then you start to convince yourself oh, well, I can make my money back. You, you've got loss aversion bias. You've got sunk costs of time. And, and you really have to be prepared to just throw something in the bin. Um, and, and you have to be prepared to change your mind when the facts change. You don't want to start refitting an investment case to a new set of facts and believing or convincing yourself nothing has changed. So when something's changed, don't be afraid to admit that you're wrong. And, and, and that's happened to us um, um, numerous times um, over, the, uh, over my career 
that we've had to face reality and deal with it. And, and I find it very therapeutic to actually admit not only to yourself, which is the first one, but to admit publicly that you've made an error error here. And, and, and it's the nature of, of the game here. But the nature of the game is, is to not get focused on that one investment that can get go wrong, but to focus on the what I call the batting average. Um, you, you really want to focus on, on the all of the portfolio. It's easy to focus, oh, well, Alibaba had a bad year that year, but it's small in the context of the overall portfolio. What you don't want is a whole series of investments that, that go wrong. And the batting average is all about having a very consistent win rate and minimising the, 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 the error um, uh, the uh, the error rate um, uh, here. There's some other things that I think are super important. Having a medium-term investment horizon um, is really important. It's really easy to say. It's really hard for people to do. Um, you know, to genuinely see out three to five years in the future and not to get caught up in the in the short-term noise of what's going on about, you know, how you're performing relative to the market or, or what other people are saying. Uh, it's all about being able to see where the ball is headed and to back your judgment over time. And why is that important? Because ultimately investing, in our view, is probably one of the most important lessons is the power of compound interests. Um, and what you want to do is to be able to put your money into investments and effectively sit on your ass and let those great investments work for you over time. You don't care whether Microsoft is underperforming the index in the next, in the next six months. It is irrelevant. What is relevant is whether those investments can compound for you over five years, 10 years into the future and what that rate of return is. It's not about one-off price changes, what you think the price can do in the next six months or 12 months. It's about whether that investments can compound for you. And a quote I often give people is a quote from one of the founding fathers of the, of the United States, Benjamin Franklin. And he said, money makes money and the money that money makes, makes more money. And if you think about it, that's what investing is all about. It's about taking a longer term view, backing the right businesses that effectively can compound their earnings at very, very satisfactory rates. Um, you know, trying to find just speculative investments where the price can change quickly in 12 months and then be able to flip into something else where it can change in the next 12 months is just like gin rummy. It's just really, really hard. What we want to have is a set of cards that we can hold for a long period of time. You know, we've invested in many investments that we've held for over 10 years. Um, uh, and many of these investments, if we take our Microsoft investment, which is still our largest investment, we invested in 2014. So seven years ago, we took our major position, $28 a share. We have made 10 times our money. And if you, if you looked at a lot of the stuff that's going on at the moment, some stuff's up 50% or something in the, last, in the last 12 months. Some of that we haven't been in. How much of that stuff is going to go up tenfold in the next seven years? It, it, it's just very, very rare to find things that can compound for you 
and then making the judgment that you're going to put a serious amount of money to work for a, for, for a long period of time. So my view is this, this, this concept of time and compound interest is the centre of what we uh, of uh, of what we do, you want your money to work for you, and we we set ourselves a an absolute hurdle over the long term, as you as you know, David. We put after all fees nine percent per annum as our hurdle in how we think. Uh, the strategy's done better than that over time, but but it is it is how we think. The only way people get ahead in life is satisfactory compounding their capital at at at, at rates. Um, over uh, over time, you know, people think you know your money could be up thirty or fifty percent in a year is great, but but our our view is you want to compound your capital over many years, um, and not just not just have short term um, uh, thinking. So you know, there's some of the attributes, but as I said at the beginning, you never stop learning. There, there are so many things that you keep taking away. Um, and you keep putting them in it. Knowledge is cumulative in this game, um, and you just keep learning more things all the time by reading and looking and, and hopefully being very honest to yourself what you get right and what you get wrong. Hamish, one of the things I'm interested in is one of the traits that you called out there was this heuristic of becoming wedded to something, and I think it was Richard Thaler in his research that talked about when somebody owned a mug versus not owning the mug they assigned more value to it so all of a sudden when they were the owner of that mug it might have been worth five dollars where they would have been prepared to pay two dollars if they didn't own it and this idea of becoming wedded to these investment ideas and not being able to walk away from them is a similar concept in my mind uh, are there ways or tricks or systems or processes that you've been able to put around yourself or that you use to ensure that you don't fall into the trap of loving something versus, no, I think I'm right and this will play out and it's just a short-term blip in the market that's working against me? Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting question you're asking there, there David. And, and, and Richard Thaler, I, I, I've been very lucky that, that I actually went to a course at Harvard that, that Richard was teaching. So um, I had some firsthand experience with, uh, with Richard and he's written some wonderful uh, materials on sort of heuristic biases that, that, that you're referring um, uh, uh, to. And, and, and one of them is this sort of emotional attachment that, that you get. Some people are have the right temperament for investing, and one of the things in 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 in, in gr the great investors like Buffett and others of the world, they're just very emotionally detached from 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 their decision making. It's just incredibly objective. I'm lucky. I'm I'm fairly emotionally detached um uh, uh from uh, uh from things and 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 very driven by the analytics of, of it but but you're right you know we 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 have sometimes had very long-term relationships with managements buffett often says that the stocks don't know that you own them and that's largely the case in the way to think is that these these these, these stocks don't know whether you own them or you don't own them, so don't get emotional about it. But but there is human elements that that, that that come in this, and there are there are periods in which we become very close to management. Uh, a very good example is we became uh, very close to to the Tesco um, uh, management. Dave Lewis, who came in to run it after a disaster, and 
I was one of the first investors in the world who I flew to uh, flew to uh, Heathrow Airport and saw him at the airport when he just took over as managing director, and we got very engaged about what had to happen with the company um, to 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 restructure the company and deal with their debt issues and what was going on in America and so forth. And Dave Lewis really viewed us as somebody who was backing him. We were one of the largest shareholders backing him, and he was deeply grateful to, to, to what we were doing. And then, then maybe a few years later, he had done everything he said he would do and, and everything we talked about. Then I made a decision to sell the stock. Um, and I knew that that was, would have been deeply disappointing to the management who, who knew us very well and we had... We, we, had, we, we, we had backed them. Um, and, of course, I called Dave after, but you just can't get emotional about that, 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 decision, uh, that, that decision making. And it's hard, I, to, to be honest. When you get closer to management, and sometimes um, we, we may decide not to get too close to management because it can cloud your judgment from time to time. Um, you know, are they going to think you're, 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 you're bad people or you're dickheads because they've shared their confidence and everything with you and then you've, then you've sold, the, uh, sold the stock? But you, you, you can't get emotional about, these, uh, about the, the, these things. And, you know, the, there's other things around confirmation bias. You, you know, when you've got an investment and you absolutely love the investment, it's very easy to find information that will confirm why you're right from your analysts and everything else. What you have to do in that situation is, and, and, and Charlie Munger says this, is you have to invert the problem. You have to put at the forefront um, information that's trying to destroy your investment case. Um, and we often do that at Magellan. You know, what, why are we wrong on this? Um, and really try and seek the alternative view as opposed to seeking the information that's convincing yourself why you're right um, uh, here. But there's a whole lot of the Richard Thaler heuristic biases. We could talk on this all day, but I've written a lot about heuristic biases over, uh, over time. We talk about them a lot in the team, but the, the problem is, is, our, is our systems are kind of hardwired to make shortcuts um, the way the human brain works. Um, and this is why these biases are in, are in your system. And the emotion one that you're talking about is an emotional bias that, that humans have. And I'm lucky I'm not that emotional. Um, maybe that's why I'm an oddball um, uh, slightly here. here. But um, it, it, it's a hard one. It's a great, great question. Maybe uh, changing tack slightly, could we talk about your views of the current fad or the, the huge money we've seen poured into investing in cryptocurrencies and similar. And also I'd include in with that the, the huge move, particularly by retail money into what I'd call these Robin Hood type stocks um, where it's become as much about the story and the fad and the position as the underlying fundamentals, I, I suspect. I'd be interested in your views on crypto and that sort of Robin Hood space. Yeah, David, I, I may separate them into two. There, there, there mm. is some correlation, but there is some slightly different. I would put the Robin Hood-style investments, or maybe you'd also say sort of Wall Street bets. Um, th these are, these are crowd-driven 
investments and really for people who don't do their own work and analysis. And to me, this is just crowd speculation rather than investing. You know, some of these investments may be incredibly good investments and some may be absolute terrible investments. And it's really a lottery investing in, in that. You know, what I think about investing is about all about doing your own analysis and it's not about what the crowd thinks. You know, sometimes the crowd is right and sometimes it can be completely wrong. And the problem about going into a sort of Robin Hood style investment is you know you're in a mass crowd into particular in the investments you're in. And if the crowd changes its view or there's a market downturn, and particularly if it's relatively unsophisticated crowd in those investments and it changes direction, you could get completely murdered. So when, when the crowd is all moving in a direction, they all think they're heroes because everybody's just piling in. Of course, as you put more people into a single investment, the price goes up. That doesn't mean that that investment's worth more money just because its price is going up. That's just more people are buying the investment. But if that crowd changes direction, you could get murdered. And, and, and to be in that investment, it's a bit like, as Warren Buffett says, is, is these people go, oh, I know that. But don't worry, I know I'll get out of the investment. But the problem, it's like being Cinderella at the ball. You know, all these Robin Hood investors are in these investments, all thinking that they're smart, that they can exit the party at one minute to midnight. The problem is, is the clocks have no hands at this party. And if you wait till it strikes midnight, everything turns to pumpkin and mice. So, you know, we, we just don't want to get into things where just mass crowds are going in, in in fairly unintelligent ways that you could get murdered when the crowd changes directions or the markets turn, 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 uh, turn, turn down. So to, to us, that's just not investing. That, 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 that's a completely different thing. But some of the investments underlying it could be very good investments and some just may be terrible uh, in, in in investment. So I, I regard it as fairly high risk. Um, there'll be high risk at points in time where people get killed. Uh, but when things are all rosy and everything else, it looks like an easy way to make money. But you could be picking up, uh, you could be picking up coins in front of a steamroller mm -hmm. um, uh, here. Crypto is a, a very interesting one. And the latest investor letter I actually wrote um, on crypto and, and on Bitcoin. And really, I was just trying to point out that, that the, the lack of any substance behind something like Bitcoin, and it's really a study in human psychology, and I, I referred to it as a mass delusion. There, there is no intrinsic value underpinning something like a, 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 a Bitcoin. The, the, the technology of the blockchain is incredible uh, in terms of a distributed ledger. The proof of work concept is, is, is very smart. Psychologically, it's playing on people's fear of central banks printing money um, and the fact that there's a limited supply. But you a limited supply of tokens that have no intrinsic value just because you're going to stop producing more digital tokens. There is, there is no substance behind it. And I think it is inevitable that most of these digital forms of cryptocurrencies that have no backing by government or no 
tangible backing underneath them of any substance will inevitably go to zero in the, in the future. I can't tell you whether that's in 12 months or 10 years. Um, but I think in, in, in a study of history, this is going to be one of the crowd mass delusions um, studied in history. Whether this is written in five years or 50 years, I can't, I can't tell you, but it will be chapters in textbooks about, about irrationality of crowd-like um, uh, behaviour. But underpinning this is the emergence of digital currencies in the world on the blockchain. That is real, David. Um, we are going to move away from paper-based currencies of the world to digital currencies in the world. We are most likely going to have central bank digital currencies, exactly whether people have a direct account with the central bank on their ledger or they're going to use the banking system to, to effectively stand between it is a, is a very important regulatory issue. But I think we will take paper money out of society and we'll digitalise it um, on the blockchain. I think we could have other forms of digital currencies that are asset-backed. They could be asset-backed by other um, digital currencies. So a, a bit like what Facebook was trying to do, you could have backed by either the US dollar or a portfolio of currencies in the, in the world. There are regulatory issues associated with what Facebook was trying to do. It could under, undermine the the central banks if it if it got very, very large, and that's why the central banks, or it could be backed by gold, or it's not inconceivable that you could have a digital crypto asset that, that is a currency that could get exchanged that was underpinned by other assets. Stocks and bonds are not inconceivable that you could have a crypto currency that is backed by a portfolio of of stocks and the value of your token could change by the value of the the the, the equities that, that are underpinning it. I think that's a very interesting concept. And then you could effectively go and shop and redeem part of your equity portfolio every single day in a in a digital currency. I, I think that would be a really I haven't seen someone suggest that, but so I do think this is headed in a direction that is going to change the way we transact and what underpins our wealth and how much we hold in central bank versus other assets, but holding it in a in a in a digital token that has absolutely nothing underpinning it at all, I, I, I think is a is 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 a delusion of grand proportions. Well, you're very clear on that. I think our listeners will appreciate that frankness. Um, if I could maybe change gear again and just talk a little bit about uh, you know the last. 14 or so years, you've built the flagship fund and, 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 and the Magellan group into a, a large group. In the latter stages of that, and I'm talking the last handful of years, we've really seen a huge amount of money move into passive ETFs, ETFs where they're really just tracking indexes. How do uh, fund managers such as yourself um, add value and return in that environment going forward? Yeah, well, first of all, I'd say on passive ETFs, they, they're great products. Uh, so you normally would expect a fund manager like me to say, oh, don't put your money in passive ETFs. Mm -hmm. What you're effectively doing is buying a share of the economy. Um, so if you're in the S&P 500, you're buying a share. Most of 
most likely the American economy. That does have some global exposure in it. And you're doing it at a super low cost because you're buying every single company in that index and it's matching the index. There's no assessment about what the value of these companies is. You're just buying a share of all of the earnings of all of those companies in that index. And it was it was actually invented by uh, the founder of Vanguard, Jack Bogle, mm-hmm. who came up with this concept of passive index investing. And it's come down to it's almost free. It almost has no cost association with buying that, that share of all those earnings in the thing. So you're buying a share of the economic output of that index at a very, very low cost. And I think, you know, Jack Bogle, is a hero of the investing world. What he's done is he has commoditized owning that profit share. There are many, many fund managers, and I think there still are fund managers today, who what I describe them as they're closet, closet index huggers. Mm-hmm. So they come up with a lot of marketing and everything else, but but really they they do things that track the track the index very, very closely. And they come up with a thing is we're going to beat the index by 2% per annum or something. Most of them have no chance of doing that because they're so close to the index. Um, and I, I, what they've done is these passive ETFs have really shown that part of the industry for what it was. You know, these were just attaching a fund manager brand to something that wasn't adding any value and charging fees for it because it was so close to just owning the index itself and they were just doing very marginal changes. And they talk about, and a lot of the things people want, the attribution analysis of what your weighting is compared to the weighting of the index. I What, what you need to do as an as a active fund manager is to do something completely differently. People can buy the index incredibly cheaply and so they should. What we need to do is to offer something that is likely to perform very differently to the index and have a very different skill set required. So if you think about what we're doing, first of all, we're setting ourselves net of all of our fees, 9% compound returns per annum over the longer term. We think the probability the index compounding your capital, because it's just a share of output of the economy, unless interest rates could somehow go down from here, Broadly, the, the return of the market should be in line with the sort of return of the economic output of the economy plus dividends. There is no chance that that can be at 9% per annum over the long term. Uh, and the only way the index could deliver 9% is effectively for the multiple to go up of those earnings. Now interest rates have gone to zero. I just think, if anything, interest rates are headed in the other direction. So if we can achieve 9% over the long term, Per annum, I think we're doing something in a compound sense that's that's very very different to what the what that share of profit output from the passive investment um, uh, looks like. And how do we do that? We're investing in a very very concentrated portfolio. The index, which is the MSCI, which is the World Equity Index, is sixteen hundred companies. We on average invest in twenty five companies. So we're taking a very different concentration of exposure in the investments we have to the index. And what do we have to do? We have to do an immense amount of due diligence and work around those investments. So we keep the batting average very, very high. And I really believe that if you're in a very concentrated portfolio that's very focused, you can deliver very different returns 
over time to what that index will, will, will provide you. Of course, for some time, we'll underperform the index because our 25 stocks look completely different. But then there are times where we dramatically outperform the index. And over time, I think that I, I think over time, since we set it up, that if you put $1,000 or $10,000 in the index, it would be worth uh, $25,000. And if you put it in our fund, it would be worth around $50,000. And I regard that, that earning double the amount of money uh, with us compared to the index. And the difference is, is it's been around 4% per annum on average return of ours versus the index. And, and over time, as that compounds, that's what we do differently. But I'm not being critical of the index. You know, uh, turning $10,000 into $25,000 in the index is very, very satisfactory. But our job is to, and that's why we're so focused on the absolute return. Uh, we're so focused on that 9% benchmark we set ourselves because we believe that is the thing that delivers extra value. And of course, what we also try to do in, in that we think about risk, we want to do our returns by having lower risk. Even though we're more concentrated, we have some very powerful attributes. And when the market turns down, we want, to, we want to give people more protection on their capital. And that's very important for sequencing risk for investors. If people are drawing money out of their investments, you do not want to be stuck in an index that plummets 50% and you still want to withdraw your 4% per annum because you're doubling the amount of the capital you're withdrawing out of it to maintain your, your lifestyle. So, you know, capital preservation in big market downturns is super important for people who are wanting to withdraw income out of their investments over, uh, over time. And I think that's another powerful attribute. But if, if you're a fund manager, you're doing something, if, if you own 100 stocks in your portfolio, um, you're broadly going to look pretty much like what the index. And I question whether that adds much value at all um, uh, over the passive e e e ETF. So, you know, we, we try to do something with very different attributes in terms of capital preservation and absolute returns over, uh, over time, uh, apply a lot of sort of due diligence. We, we spend enormous amounts of money on research and consultants and things um, uh, to really focus on our batting, batting average. And we'll, we'll be judged over uh, over uh, over time um, on on that, but we're we're very very proud of what the team has done over the last uh, fourteen years or, or or so, focused on those sort of long term returns. So, but 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 should can 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 ETFs be part passive ETFs be part of people's portfolio? Absolutely, uh, absolutely. I, I think we blend very well with those. But I, I'm never going to be critical of somebody who holds a passive ETF in their portfolio because compared to most funds with lots of stocks in them. I think people should hold the low-cost index fund over a fund manager that owns 100 stocks in their portfolio. I just think the odds of the 100-stock portfolio consistently or materially outperforming that index and paying more fees for it, I think I, think I wouldn't do it myself personally. Hamish, you alluded to it there a little bit on some of it. Now, what I'd like you to maybe talk a little bit about is your current outlook and view. And you talked about interest rates, um, I'd be interested to know how you're seeing things going forward and what type of things you're looking to position the portfolio towards to take advantage of that. Yeah, I, I'm going to answer this, David, in two different chapters here. Well, one is the sort of short-term sort of macroeconomic outlook in the next 12 to 18 months. And the first thing I'd say, judging this is probably one of the most complex judgment calls 
I can think of in the last 14 years because it is it is very hard to judge where we are at the moment, whether or not these very strong market conditions that are supported by vaccinations and reopening and the incredible amount of monetary and fiscal stimulus that has been thrown at the world's economy and the fact that many consumers, because of the, even if they've lost their job, they've still been paid by the governments because they've been paid and people have largely not been doing much, they've actually got a lot of savings around the world. So you actually can see why the economies could be very strong and supportive of these uh, of these markets with what's going on. But you can also see a whole series of risks that I describe as hiding in plain sight um, uh, 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 here that could completely unravel the markets at the click of a finger. Uh, one is this pandemic isn't over. We've learned from Delta that a, a mutation of a virus can completely change its transmissibility and, and shape effectively of what can happen. This isn't an escape mutation, but an escape mutation could happen, which renders the current vaccines ineffective. If that was to happen, we're kind of back at square one. Is it going to happen? I have no idea, David, if it's going to happen. Is it foreseeable it could happen? Absolutely, it's foreseeable. It's very hard to put the probability, but if you speak to all the experts, it's the thing they're most worried about, the health experts. Um, is it going to happen, not going to happen? What will be the economic consequences and market consequences? Hard to judge, but it may, may well not be favourable. Then you've got this whole issue of this inf emerging inflation debate. If inflation emerges and it's not transitory, and our view is it's largely going to be transitory, but it may not be transitory. It's a very unusual period in history. When rates are at zero and markets are at all-time record levels, if monetary policy had to be suddenly tightened, hold on to your chairs. These sort of euphoria days are over. Uh, and a lot of the stuff that has performed really well in the last 12 months will get crushed. Um, uh, so um, that is sort of the short term. And it, it is, and how do you position yourself when that, uh, one lens you're looking at, you want to have risk on, and the other lens you're looking at, you're going, well, that could be a really dangerous thing to be doing. So you want to have a very, very balanced view in this. And the longer this euphoria goes on, the greater fear of missing out that people people have in this environment. So that's a short term. I would say from our point of view is I'm not particularly concerned about the short-term macro risk because our portfolio is inherently defensive. If anything goes fundamentally wrong on the virus or monetary policy, Relative to what happens in general stock markets, I'm at, I'm at a level of fairly high confidence that we're going to be fine um, and our investors are going to be fine. So, so even though I paint that picture of both sides, I'm not losing. We're playing a very down the middle of the path here. We're not, we're not, we're not, we're not, we're not in a swing for the defence that the markets are about to collapse, nor are we swinging for the fence in overconfidence about what's occurring in the reopening and the stimulus here. Here, here, here either. We're just trying to keep a very level head. The longer term view is, is I think, you know, we're in a period where it suddenly looks like the world is starting to grow at rapid rates and we've got inflation and everything else. It's an illusion, David. If we go three or four years into the future, we're going to be back in a low growth world. So the real trick here is if you want to look out is how do you find the areas of the world that are going to, in the next five to 10 years, compound 
at very satisfactory rates in a world that is probably going to be very low growth. And in a world, it's even going to be more challenged, a low growth world that that interest rates may have to rise, not very dramatically, but from where they are, we're not going to have the tailwind of interest rates falling that is sort of magnified investment returns really for 20 to 30 years. But particularly in the last decade, the falling interest rates is giving people excess returns. That gift has ended. So how do we get sort of attractive rates of return on people's capital in a world that we're going into a headwind, most likely, in terms of the, 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 the multiples that are get applied to earnings because of we won't get that gift of multiples continuously going up. We, we want to find the areas of, of structural growth in the world. This is why we love sort of cloud computing, because we're at a very, very early stages of that. This is why we spent a lot of time, which is a much more complex one, on Chinese consumption growth. This is why we like now video streaming, that the world is moving away from from sort of linear television, broadcast television, paid television, and the world is moving en masse to streaming. And it's why we've bought Netflix taking a 10-year view. We like the digitalization of the world and what's going on in sort of Microsoft's um, 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 uh, uh, businesses. E-commerce is obviously taking share from traditional uh, 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 commerce. Digital payments is something we've talked about for very long periods of time because these are industries that are taking massive share from existing industries, they can grow at much faster rates. So retail may not be growing very fast, but if e-commerce is taking share from traditional retail for the next 10 years, e-commerce can be growing at 10% per annum, where retail could be growing at 2% per annum um, because of the share it takes. The same thing has happened with Google and Facebook and advertising. The total advertising pot really has grown very slowly, but their businesses have grown very rapidly because they've taken, they've taken the share. So that's what we look for. Where are these different forms of structural growth in a low-growth world that is going to overcome? You know, people, are, people, people have all rushed into sort of non-growth businesses. They're, they're, they're cyclical. They're risk-on businesses at the moment. Much of what's happened in the last 12 months just isn't going to compound. It's been a wonderful place to be for a short period of time, but that is not going to deliver people returns for the next five to 10 years. You need to be very, very thoughtful and selective where you are in the world we're looking ahead of ourselves. So the short term is all about what's going to happen, the virus and, and, and vaccinations and monetary policy. The longer term is all going to be is how do you get satisfactory returns in a low growth world without the gift of interest rates falling further. And it's Hamish, a, you mentioned China there, and I know that you pivoted the portfolio or significant investments into Tencent and Alibaba and LVMH um, over recent years. Uh, and I know also that you have considerable consultation and input at a geopolitical level from some very informed, plugged in people. How do you view the current relationship with China and that having effect on investment markets moving forward? Yeah, you're asking a very broad question. You know, I've always said getting China right over the next 10 to 20 years is one of the great opportunities and complexities for any global in investor. Why, why is China so important? China's GDP per capita or income per head 
is one-fifth of Australia in the United States. So they, they have about 13,000 US dollars per, per, per capita, um, and the United States is maybe fifty-five to $60,000 per capita. Uh, very similar to what Australia's is. And the reason it is, is because each person is consuming many more goods and services per person. The Chinese um, economy has the potential, not many people have dishwashers in China. There is a runway for the next 30 years of households getting dishwashers and getting air conditioning and getting television and getting cars. All those consumption occasions we have in the West will start happening in, in China. They've put all the ingredients in place. It's not going to be a linear curve for that consumption to keep rising and that income per head. Do I think they'll get to 57,000 per head? No, but they have a very, very long runway for that, for that GDP per head to continue to increase its satisfactory uh, rates. And therefore, we're very, very focused on the consumption side of, 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 of China. Um, I, I, we, we, are, we have now only got about 5% of the portfolio directly in Chinese stocks. So we own less of Tencent and Alibaba than we've owned in the past. Uh, and that is really around what I call the internal intervention risks of the, CC, the Chinese Communist Party about, about taking control of those things. Some of it is, 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 is hard to predict and where I have low conviction of predicting what uh, the Communist Party will do in relation to internal regulation, we are um, uh, we're probably a little bit more sanguine on. We still own Starbucks and a smaller position in LVMH. Uh, we own one of those large Chinese tech companies. I don't want to say which one we have um, uh, sold with. Um, but getting China right in the in the long term, but it's it's complex and you you want to do it in a very very um, measured. Um, uh, measured way. But if you get it right, you could still earn very attractive returns over the longer term. And of course, you've got that, 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 that the geopolitical tensions between the West and China that adds another dimension, which means the risks attaching to Starbucks is different to the risks to investing in Alibaba. And what we want to do is put sort of modest investments in different risk factors in China, you know, Starbucks is, is opening 600 restaurants a year in China, and on average, they're getting more than 80% return on opening a restaurant um, in, in China on the capital they put in. So in under two years, they get all their money back from opening a new restaurant. It's, it's unbelievable. And they, 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 they have the opportunity to probably open three times the amount of restaurants that they have today. So you've got a very, very long runway um, to to continue to open restaurants, the risk of Starbucks is is the US and China go to war over Taiwan, and China bars all American companies from participating in China. And you know, well, Starbucks it's not its entire business; its largest business is its US business, but a lot of its growth is dependent on China. So we we have, if we think the risks on Taiwan would be elevating we would probably reduce our holding in, in, in Starbucks. So that's how we would mitigate that, 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 particular, um, uh, that particular risk. You know, investing in Louis Vuitton, you have to make an assessment of whether or not the, the, the inequality crackdowns in China, Z is going to effectively want to stop people purchasing Louis Vuitton handbags. 
that is a debate we are having at the, at the, at the moment. And we spend a lot of debate with experts who have been around China for their entire careers who are evaluating this as well. So it's just not the opinions we have. It's, it's the opinions of probably some of the foremost experts in the world in assessing these, the, these risks at the moment. But, you know, we, we have our eggs in many, many different baskets. But I want to put in context, you know, whilst, whilst we've spoken a lot about China, our total China exposure is a bit over 10% of our portfolio. So I don't want people to get it out of context. You know, we have, we have 8% of our portfolio in Microsoft, which is a single investment, um, where our whole China is maybe, maybe in, in stocks, it's probably around 12%, but it would be in total revenues across all stocks. If we look at revenue, maybe it's 12%. So, you know, it's, it, it's important, but it's not that bigger part of what we, we do. And I think, it's probably proportionally about right between maybe 10 and 15% of your portfolio exposed to China in a thoughtful way is probably about in my thing about the right sort of level where you, where, where you want to be given, given there are unique risks around China as well. Well, Hamish, thank you very much. You've been very generous with your time. Thanks for joining us for this hundredth episode of Inside the Rope. Really appreciate it. David, it's been an absolute pleasure and thank you so much for including me on the 100th episode. That is incredibly generous of you. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.